This episode is brought to you by Paycor, the HR and payroll software made for leaders. It's never been harder to recruit, hire, and engage workers. That's why HR leaders and frontline managers depend on Paycor for all things people management, from onboarding and performance reviews to compensation and benefits. Learn more at paycor.com slash leaders. That's P-A-Y-C-O-R dot com slash leaders. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. You see it on the news. You see it on the paper. You see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not real life. When I first met him, nothing set off an alarm bell for me. Nothing that made me double think you know, about what was going on. The day that I told him that I was pregnant and it was a surprise pregnancy was the day that it started. He hugged me very tight. He, you know, gets me close, he's ecstatic for me. And I was like, hmm, that that doesn't feel okay. I just would like continue. It was more of the rubbing, the hugs, you know, that were too long, the, the, just, Stuff that just really made me uncomfortable and his hands were definitely not in appropriate places. I felt stuck in this situation and I came to a point where I told my mom, like, I don't want to go. Like, I'm not comfortable with this. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Fanick. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter and... It is the uh, 28th of December, which means we're in that weird time warp right now that doesn't like life doesn't exist. We're between Christmas and New Year's. Are you getting drunk every day? Are you trying to start bettering yourself before the new year? Like, what are you doing? I want to know. Are you sleeping? Do you know what day it is? Are we ruining (laughs) everything by telling you? Like, that's sort of where we're at. Because I know for me, These few days are always such a blur. I think that we talked about it before, but are you the type of person that you're trying to like tie up your loose ends or are you just kind of like letting into the obscurity of... So my loose ends are going on last week. Like I did everything between, you know, the 16th or whatever until like the 20th, 23rd ish. And then I shut down and I won't be looking at my computer. So I'm, I'm right now chilling, but it was pretty stressful because I always handle my tax stuff before the new year. I know that's such a damper. Very hurtful. (laughs) It really, uh, it's a big uh, knife in the chest. Totally. But it is December 28th, our holidays. It's a little bleak. Call a friend day. I really like that. If you have a friend you haven't talked to in a while that you should be checking up on or just, you know, calling. Give them a ring. A cousin, a sibling, a, a, a grandparent. Like, call call some people you haven't talked to. Give them a call. And you know what? Use it as an excuse. If you are a drinker and you're getting a little saucy, you can do a drunk call. That's fine. Nobody likes calling about people. You, man. Yeah. It makes you, everyone man. uncomfortable. Yeah. It's also National Card Playing Day. Uh, I love a card game. 
And it's also National Chocolate Candy Day. That's mm. a day I can get behind. Me too. That's it for the days, though. It's a little bit bleak, but we've got a few good ones in there. Yeah, we'll deal. So that is enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. How do sexual predators control their victims? Threats, violence, guilt, and secrecy. All of these are physical and emotional ways that predators manipulate people they have in their sights. They're masters of manipulation, and these predators force victims into situations they don't want to be in, using diabolical tactics to ensure they'll return to harm over and over again. But what about biological ways that predators control their victims? Situations where a victim's own body, which should be theirs and theirs alone, is used against them. That's a really terrifying concept, isn't it? And you're wondering whether that could even happen. There is no way, right? There's no way a predator could biologically exploit their victims into a cycle of abuse. Unless, what if a predator had the access, the resources, and ability to force their victim into a drug addiction? Because sometimes... Predators are trusted medical professionals. We rely on them to give us treatment and prescriptions, hoping their only intention is to help us solve our worst ailments. These predators are from the highest, most educated echelons of our society. There are doctors. They take the Hippocratic Oath and swear they'll do no harm. But what if they're lying? And what if they're lying for insidious reasons? So today's case spans the course of 15 years between 2002 and 2017. And obviously there's a ton that's happening in the stretch of time. So we're going to take you through a little highlight reel. Popular movies included Love Actually from 2003 and Kick Ass from 2010. For songs, some hits were P. Diddy's I Need a Girl, which came out in 2002, and Ed Sheeran's Shape of You in 2017. Two bangers. Two bangers. In 2003, Beyonce left behind Destiny's Child and started her solo career. In 2007, the iPhone was introduced. In 2011, Game of Thrones started airing. In 2014, Sarah Koenig created the hit true crime podcast, Serial, and true crime has never been the same since. And honestly, she trailblazed for everyone behind her, including us. Like, she is a queen. She is a queen. I want to re-listen to that podcast now. Me too. And in 2017, a fire fest failed spectacularly. So that is your crash course from 2002 and 2017. And honestly, those are the only things I kind of remember from that entire 15-year span myself. So good recap. Literally. Today's case begins in Hopewell Township, New Jersey, East Coast. So located near the western border of the state, Hopewell Township has a population of about 17,000 people. This was where George Washington famously crossed the Delaware River on Christmas Eve in 1776. Oh my gosh, almost... I'm not going to do the math, but (laughs) some annual anniversary, clearly. And that occurred during the Revolutionary War. And he did that with 2,400 troops, which is crazy. And today, Hopewell Township is a wealthy community with an average household income of about $150,000. So they're known for their local parks, their breweries, and their wineries. And for this case, we'll also mention New York City and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 
All three cities are within 100 miles of one another, so they're relatively close together. So that's kind of the region where all of the case today unfolds. And our first degree for today's case is named Sarah. And Sarah lived in Mercer County, which is the same county where Hopewell Township, New Jersey is. And when Sarah entered her 20s, she was diagnosed with several chronic illnesses. She had fibromyalgia, migraines, and gastroparesis. And due to her ailments, Sarah was in pain almost 24-7. I literally can't even imagine. Yeah, me either. I had so many medical stuff going on. I had severe fibromyalgia, just pain all over my body all the time. I had uh, really bad chronic migraines, like just all the time. And then I also have gastroparesis, which is where your stomach doesn't digest as fast as it's supposed to. I was just always nauseous, always feeling sick, you know, just in pain all the time. I ended up with a feeding tube and then I couldn't tolerate the formula from the feeding tube. So I had all over pain all the time. It was too much. So just hearing what Sarah was going through, that's clearly so much for somebody to manage. And no matter what medical experts Sarah went to, it seemed like her doctors couldn't fix, figure out, or help her ongoing pain. So as you can imagine, Sarah was incredibly frustrated. All she wanted was to live a normal pain-free life, but she couldn't. Sarah's constant pain was out of control, and she was running out of options. But luckily for Sarah, there was a light at the end of the tunnel, and that light was Dr. Ricardo Cruciani. And not only was Cruciani highly regarded as an Ivy League-educated anesthesiologist and neurologist, he also specialized in pain management cases exactly like Sarah's. Cruciani had spent over 10 years in the pain management field and was considered a brilliant doctor. It was kind of a common knowledge thing for medical professionals in the New England area. If a patient had this stubborn pain that no other doctor could solve, send them over to Cruciani. And he was practically a miracle worker in this regard. And at first, Sarah thought that Cruciani was great. He seemed like an effective doctor and a nice guy. When I first met him, there was no signs of nothing inappropriate. Nothing set off an alarm bell for me. You know, I had no... Nothing to, you know, that, that made me double think, you know, about what, what was going on. And then everybody was like hailing accolades and things of what a good doctor he was. He was very personable and, you know, really was listening and, and, you know, responding to what I was saying about my pain and things like that. So finally, Sarah was getting the treatment she needed to help manage her seemingly never-ending pain. And she entrusted Cruciani with her medical care, and why wouldn't she? After all, he was an esteemed pain management doctor with an immaculate reputation. And Cruciani's methods were a little unorthodox, sure, but no one could deny his results. So you see, Cruciani's entire MO was to prescribe his patients a large number of painkillers to control their severe pain. Specifically, Cruciani gave his patients opioids, a lot of them. Opioids are narcotics and includes drugs like hydrocodone, oxycodone, fentanyl, morphine, and codeine. And heroin is also an opioid, but not a prescription one. Obviously, that's an illicit illegal drug. But for people like Sarah who needed something to help them just exist peacefully, Cruciani was a lifesaver. Sarah could manage her inevitable opioid addiction safely with Cruciani's medical guidance. Then she would be able to decrease her terrible chronic pain. 
And ultimately, at first, his method seemed really effective. So there were no immediate red flags. Sarah did as her doctor told her, as most of us do. Plus, there was the added security with all of this because Sarah's mom was a nurse. So she was not only monitoring her daughter, but Sarah had this built-in informal second opinion that Cruciani's medical treatment plan was okay. And she signed off on it. So Sarah saw nothing wrong with it. At that time, I I would say he was slightly over-prescribing, but my mom's a nurse and she's like hardcore on making sure that my, you know, my medical stuff is where it's supposed to be and, you know, everything like that. So I had that reassurance that, you know, well, moms knew all my medical stuff. So I felt comfortable. And not only was Cruciani a pain management specialist and anesthesiologist and a neurologist, but he was also trained in psychiatry. This dude is fucking doing it all somehow. Equipped. Equipped. So during Sarah's appointments with Cruciani, he would ask her questions about her past. At the time, it seemed like Cruciani's goal was to figure out what to prescribe Sarah so he could give her the best medical care possible. Maybe he was also trying to show Sarah that he genuinely cared about her well-being. I mean, we all know bedside manner with doctors. So, I mean, it's probably a nice thing in the beginning. And when the questions became really personal, Sarah kind of chalked it up to Cruciani needing to understand her mental health to get to the bottom of her physical health. I think he, you know, he had his ways of talking to us, asking questions. Like, again, there was a whole thing about, like, what's your previous history and trauma and, you know, what's happened to you before. And there was, you know, a whole sheet that we had to fill out regarding like our past history. And I took it as sometimes doctors feel that if someone has, you know, severe PTSD or something like that, like your body is more tense. Sarah gave him the benefit of the doubt like anybody else would with her own doctor. She continued to see Cruciani and it was going well. She was taking prescription opioids and her pain was getting better. Things were really starting to look up. Until one day, Sarah found out that she was pregnant. And she shared that information with Dr. Cruciani at her next appointment. And his reaction was really strange. The day that I told him that I was pregnant with my daughter was the day that it started. He hugs me very tight. He, you know, gets gets in close. He's he's looks ecstatic for me. And the hug wasn't what made it weird. I was maybe six to eight weeks along, but I, I was really small the whole time. And he took his hand and he like rubbed you, you know how people will rub like pregnant people's bodies, but it's usually like six you know, seven, eight months. I had no belly and he like rubbed it, but it was like right below my breast. Like the top of his hand was like brushing my breast. And I was like, "Mm, that, that doesn't feel okay, but okay. So, you know, I went home, you know, I had, he said that, you know, we would work with whatever and figure out how he was going to prescribe while I was pregnant. So like, I felt confident that, you know, he knew what he was doing or that he felt confident in prescribing. Once again, though, Sarah gives Dr. Cruciani the benefit of the doubt. Again, he's her doctor, which is a profession we're all taught to trust from a very young age. Plus he is the only doctor who had been able to help and took Sarah's chronic pain seriously. 
she couldn't really window shop other pain management practices because he was her last hope. And hey, maybe Cruciani didn't mean to inappropriately touch her. Maybe it was an accident. Maybe he failed to read the room. Maybe he's creepy but doesn't realize that he's crossing a line. Not that that's okay. But maybe he's not insidious is really what we're getting to the bottom of. And you know how it goes in kind of a situation like this. It's easier to rationalize it that it was an accidental touch and he didn't really mean anything by it. So Sarah continued seeing Dr. Cruciani throughout her pregnancy. But then Sarah noticed that she was becoming increasingly addicted to the medication that Cruciani had prescribed her. Worried about her health, Sarah began weaning off the drugs after her baby daughter was born. But without warning, Cruciani began canceling his appointments with Sarah and he was doing this left and right. And this was a big problem because Cruciani required Sarah to see him in person for prescription refills. Right. If Sarah couldn't get her opioid prescription refilled, even as she was reducing her dosage, she would go through some pretty serious withdrawal, which is, of course, awful. It's also dangerous, especially for a new mother. You know, the mental health implications here are really possibly catastrophic. Opioid withdrawal causes nausea, vomiting, light sensitivity, heart palpitations, and beyond. And people who've gone through opioid withdrawal told the New York Times it feels like death. So it helps you paint a picture of like what kind of control the dispenser of this person's meds has over a patient potentially. The addiction to the opioids is what got worse first. I was trying to wean off of these really high meds and all of a sudden it was like you know this appointment is canceled or you know and a family emergency has come up with the doctor and he can't come or there was just all these weird you know things and it was like okay well I'm running out of meds and you you can have seizures you like all kinds of things can happen if you just stop opioids. So I, you know, my mom starts getting in on it and we're sitting in the car in the parking lot of a mall in New Jersey. And I remember it so clearly, like she's on the phone with the office manager and she's like arguing, well, why can't she see another, you know, who else can she see or what else can be done and da, 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 da. And I don't know what the office manager said to her, but my mom like almost basically yelled to her on the phone and I'm like, what the hell? And so she gets quiet for a second and then she tells her to hold on. And I don't know who she was passed to. I don't know, you know, who spoke to her next, but that was basically when we found out the reason for his absence was due to something regarding that behavior. So What is the behavior that Sarah is referring to? So we have a lot of questions, and I know that you do too. So let's start with this one. Why was Cruciani absent? What about Cruciani's behavior did Sarah and her mom discover? And was he harming his patients? Was Sarah affected? In short, what the fuck is going on with this doctor? So to answer these questions, you know the drill. We're going back. Ricardo Alberto Cruciani was born in July of 1954 in Argentina, and we don't know a lot about Cruciani's childhood. The information is just not really available. But we do know that Cruciani moved to the United States, and in the U.S., he attended an Ivy League school and received both an MD and a PhD, and that's how he became a pain management doctor. 
At some point, Cruciani married a woman named Nora Esteban, and like Cruciani, Nora was also a doctor from Argentina. She received her medical degree from the University of Buenos Aires in 1980 and became a highly awarded pediatrician. Honestly, this sounds like a dream. Two successful doctors. It seems like a picture-perfect life. And from 2001 to 2013, Cruciani built a thriving medical practice at a hospital that used to be known as Beth Israel in New York City. It's a very well-known hospital. Yeah. That's where Cruciani spent over 10 years developing his unique technique of prescribing powerful opioids at much higher quantities than most doctors. And I'm actually going to interrupt myself because I don't have this built into this episode, but I know this probably sounds weird to people listening, his unique technique of (laughs) over-prescribing opioids, but at the time it was new, you know, this was pre-opioid crisis. And I think in the past, and this is what's supposed to really drive this point home, I think people were very conservative with drugs that were so highly addictive and potentially fatal if mixed with other drugs and variables, you know? Right. So like for this, like this is groundbreaking. Like his overprescribing of medication (laughs) at the time was very fresh. And looking back, I mean, it seems absolutely fucking insane, but I guess you have to put yourself in the mindset of when this was happening. And like we said, people were saying that he was a miracle worker. He was a miracle doctor. So whatever he was doing, he was doing something right. And people did not realize the horrible, horrible effects that opioids have on a person. Oh, totally. And in modern times, his methods would be highly suspect. And that's because in 2017, the U.S. government declared a nationwide opioid crisis which honestly makes sense. And I really think it was going on way before 2017, right? Well, it was all being built up until then by totally. people like this guy. Yeah, and hidden. And But if you guys have watched Dope Sick, like the show on, yeah. I think it's a Hulu show, it's amazing. And it, it really gives you a, an idea about like how many people were conned when it comes to opioids. Yeah. But in 2019, over 10 million people misused prescription opioids. And in 2022, 67% of all drug overdose deaths were attributed to opioids. That's more than half, right? So back in the early 2000s, though, opioids were treated very differently than they are today. They were still on the up and up. They were still being sold as like the new miracle drug and marketed as this cutting edge pain management. They were marketed as not addictive. Oh my God. And that's a fucking lie. (laughs) It makes you really think it's like what's happening right now that is going to get revealed in a few years and we're totally fucking ourselves. Absolutely. It's terrifying. But, you know, these pharmaceutical companies, they just say whatever they want and we believe it and they have the FDA in their pocket. It's terrifying. Yep. They're basically controlling the world. So this difference is obviously fucking wild. So starting in the late 90s, pharmaceutical companies told doctors that opioid pain relievers were not addictive. Like Alexa said, we know that they're majorly addictive. It's pretty insane. But as a result of big pharma's lies, healthcare providers prescribed more and more and more and more opioids. Pharmaceutical companies made huge stacks of cash as they do. Patients became unwittingly addicted to opioids and doctors are now only just adjusting how they prescribe these powerful painkillers. It is so fucked up. Yeah, it's terrible. But no matter how addictive these opioids are, it's undeniable that they did help people get rid of their pain. But just along with the pain management comes an addictive, out-of-control situation for many users. And many of Cruciani's patients really appreciated that he prescribed them such high quantities of opioids. Because imagine, like, they're 
trying to cure their pain. And this actually did work, but they just didn't realize what was going to come along with it. And Cruciani's patients would frequently write him holiday cards, thank you notes, social media posts, and applauded his amazing work. And like our first degree, Sarah, these patients, they were dealing with crippling pain and this man took it away. Some patients had chronic illnesses. Some had survived terrible accidents like car crashes. Like this guy at this time seemed like a savior. And people would travel across the country just to be Cruciani's patient. And everything seemed to be going great for this doctor. He had a thriving practice. Everything seemed awesome. Great reputation. But that changed in 2013 when Cruciani unexpectedly resigned from his position at Beth Israel Hospital. Oh, yeah. Cruciani sold his ginormous house for just under $1 million and got the fuck out of New York City. And if you're suspicious, you are correct. And we're going to come back to this mysterious resignation in a little bit. But for now, after leaving Beth Israel in New York, Dr. Cruciani began working at a different hospital. Now, he was in the neurosciences department of Capital Health Medical Center in Hopewell Township, New Jersey. And that is where Cruciani met our first degree, Sarah. So Sarah had been seeing Cruciani for a while now, but she was starting to feel uncomfortable, like she mentioned earlier. And that's for good reason. As we mentioned, he had asked Sarah some pretty invasive personal questions and touched her inappropriately. And Cruciani's list of red flags continued to grow. For example, when Sarah was pregnant, she actually decided she wanted a new doctor, one who would treat her chronic pain without such highly addictive prescription drugs. But she quickly found that no other doctor would take her. And this is really terrifying. No doctor would take her because of the insanely high amounts of opioids that Cruciani had prescribed Sarah. These insanely high doses made other doctors feel as though she was kind of too high risk to treat for her chronic pain. Like they didn't want to be responsible if something bad happened to her because he had gotten... Cruciani had gotten Sarah addicted to these painkillers. So even finding a doctor for Sarah's pregnancy was tough. Everyone was really aghast at the amount of opioids Cruciani had prescribed her, and no one knew what to do about it. I guess his plan was to get me to a, a point in medication and, and how much he was prescribing where no other doctor would touch me. And that's what happened. My OB was like, I can't treat you. You know, it's too dangerous. You're too high risk. Every other pain management doctor that I tried to go to, nobody would take me. So this is a medically dangerous situation. Sarah physically could not sever ties with Cruciani or his massive opioid prescriptions because she was chemically dependent due to the volume of the medication that he was prescribing her. She felt trapped and she was so unhappy. I'm sure she was so upset. And as Cruciani's inappropriate touching gradually became worse and worse and worse, Sarah was desperate to get the hell out of Cruciani's care. It just would like continue. It was more, you know, of the rubbing, the hugs, you know, that were too long, the, the just stuff that just really made me uncomfortable. His hands were definitely not in appropriate places. I felt stuck in this situation and I came to a point where I told my mom, like, I'm, I'm, I don't want to go. Like, I'm not comfortable with this. Since Sarah was pregnant with her soon to be daughter and on an incredibly high dosage of prescribed opioids, she was trapped with Cruciani 
Because if she stopped taking all of these drugs, her unborn daughter could have died. Like it really can have catastrophic medical effects. When a mother takes opioids during their pregnancy, the fetus becomes dependent on them as well. If the mother stops the opioids, the fetus goes through withdrawal, which can cause many terrible side effects like low birth weight, jaundice, seizures, and sudden infant death. It's called neonatal abstinence syndrome or NAS. Sometimes NAS happens when people abuse drugs, but you have to remember, Sarah wasn't abusing drugs or doing anything wrong. Dr. Cusiani, who was her trusted physician, had prescribed her this amount of drugs and had given her these drugs under the pretense and understanding that it was a safe amount. And the understanding that we all have now about opioids wasn't there back then. So she was just doing as her doctor told and, you know, it wasn't what she thought. One of the neonatal doctors said to me, like, we know how to wean a newborn off opioids, but we don't know how to wean a fetus. So they're basically saying there's nothing we can do while she's still inside you because, we, you know, we don't know how to wean a, a fetus. We know, we know how to wean a, a baby that's come out and everything. So, like, there was no opportunity for me to be able to wean while she was still inside. Like, I, I had to, to keep taking the meds. In February of 2016, after three years of working at Capitol Health in New Jersey, Cruciani changed his job again. Through a professional connection, he became the head of neurology department at Drexel University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and Sarah was forced to follow him as a patient. And this is where Cruciani was working, where he started ghosting Sarah's appointments. And the reason that Cruciani couldn't keep his appointments? Well, in March of 2017, after an internal investigation, Drexel University fired Dr. Ricardo Cruciani for medical misconduct and sexual harassment of his patients. Five months later, in September of 2017, 63-year-old Ricardo Cruciani was arrested for raping numerous female patients over the course of 15 years. What the actual fuck. Insane, but not surprised somehow. Not surprising at this point, not surprised. Nothing surprised me. No. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program, and it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. 
Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. In March of 2017, after many patients and staff complaints about Dr. Ricardo Cruciani's inappropriate sexual behavior towards female patients, Drexel University conducted an internal investigation. And the investigation proved the complaints were 100% true. Cruciani had been sexually assaulting his female patients. Immediately, Drexel University fired Cruciani and notified the relevant medical licensing authorities and also called the police, which was a good call. When Cruciani's firing became public knowledge, dozens of women came forward. All of them said that Cruciani sexually preyed on them while he was their pain management doctor. And for over a decade, Cruciani had perfected his pattern of sexual abuse. First, he went out of his way to make a personal connection with the patient. He'd act like they were friends. He'd ask about their childhood or their personal lives or whatever. Remember the unusually personal questions that Cruciani asked Sarah? That was what he did to lay the groundwork for his underlying plans. He was like pretty much grooming his patient. Very groomy and knew that he had a weapon at his disposal, which is something he could make these women dependent on because they had pain. It's really like one of the most insidious kind of predators I can imagine because everyone feels the safest at their doctor's office. And it's also just like textbook person in power using whatever thing that they have to control their victim. Like it's it's so fucking simple and stupid at the same time. Absolutely. So once his patient felt comfortable, the doctor would begin to prescribe them these dangerously high doses of opioid medication to subdue their chronic pain. 
and Cruciani purposely ensured that the patient was reliant on him for their high dosage painkiller prescription. Like that was his whole MO. That was his thing because he's not, he can't wield power on his own because he's a mediocre fucking man, right? So (laughs) he had to control women with a chemical, which is disgusting, right? So, but once his victims were reliant on him, this allowed him to manipulate them. Once he had this very sadistic control over his targets, he would push boundaries. He'd gradually start crossing boundaries more and more so until he was fully sexually assaulting his patients. And Cristiani's conversation with the patient would become less professional and more flirty. He did this in like stages, right? Like Jack said, it was grooming. He'd give patients long hugs. He'd caress their backs, run his fingers through their hair, and he'd whisper in their ears. And as Cristiani's advances escalated, he'd work his way up to forcibly kissing, groping, and otherwise sexually abusing his unwilling patients. Like he did this... Over the course of a long time, it's it's truly, like, shocking. And he would conduct breast and vaginal examinations, even though he was Ugh. not an obstetrician or a gynecologist. And he would demand the patients touch his genitals with their hands and their mouths. And Cruciani forces patients to have intercourse with them also. I mean, it's it's not crazy when you think about who he was targeting, right? People desperate. A chemical dependency is something you can exploit, and he did. And that's, it's really disturbing. And the longer a patient stayed with Cruciani, the more aggressive his sexual assaults became. And as Cruciani proceeded and escalated in terms of the criminal acts that he perpetrated against his patients, and in tandem, he would increase the dosages of their opioid pain management medication at the same time. It's fucking crazy. So as he became more devious with each patient, he had to assert more control to ensure these victims wouldn't turn on him or rat him out, right? So he had to get more sort of manipulative. He was intentionally trying to get them addicted to opioids. He was trying to exert more and more control. And then Cristiani would use this drug addiction as leverage to allow for this sexual assault. He knew that his patients were stuck with him once he began their high opioid prescription regimen because other doctors would never take them. No one was doing this yet. No one's doing this now. There was like a a short period of time where people allowed this kind of thing, but he was even new with that, right? And even if patients did find another doctor who'd take them, Cruciani sabotaged their attempts to leave. It's pretty sadistic. And for at least one patient, Cruciani refused to give them their medical records, For other patients, he wouldn't provide a referral, which made it much harder for the patient to find another pain management doctor. And for many patients, Cruciani would threaten to withhold their opioid prescription if they tried to stop the sexual abuse. And AP News reported that one patient said, Cruciani didn't finish writing my prescriptions until I did something for him. That same patient also said, Cruciani was nothing but a drug dealer who used his prescription pad as a weapon. So this whole thing is so fucking horrifying. And as horrifying as everything is, there is just no way that Cruciani is the only person with this kind of power who's doing something like this. We know that for a fact. And as a result of Cruciani's manipulation, his sexual assault, and his insane medical malpractice, his patients' lives were and are changed forever. They are mentally and physically traumatized, and one victim told the New York Post that her life has been reduced to mere survival because she battles both drug addiction and the PTSD of being sexually assaulted. And our first degree, Sarah, has also been affected. 
Thankfully, she wasn't raped by this man, but she still experienced Cruciani's sexual harassment and manipulation for her opioid prescriptions. I was, as weird as this sounds, I was one of the luckier ones. I've heard some of the stories of the other women. There was sodomy, rape, you know, all of these kinds of things. But the thing that I think makes it worse is he was not only a pain management doctor. He also had his credentials as a psychiatrist. So what he was doing was asking, I guess, specifically the women what their, like, histories were. And then from there, figuring out who he was going to pursue and how far and and things like that. So for me, most of it was, you know, the breast and, you know, my stomach and, you know, hands on me a little longer than, you know, what I thought was necessary like because of all my medical stuff I'd been around doctors a lot I was like this feels like when it's not right so I was you know quote lucky and that he didn't actually rape me I don't know if that was because I was pregnant or you know because once she was born I had her with me not to mention Sarah still has chronic illnesses that cause her pain But due to Cruciani's so-called treatment of high-dosage opioids, other low-level painkillers don't work for her like they should. As you can imagine, this creates ongoing problems for Sarah, and she is still in tons of pain, and it's really messed a lot of things up for her. It's hard when you have a chronic illness or, you know, a chronic pain or something like that because nurses and doctors look at you like you're drug-seeking because of... Kushiani, he had me on such high doses of pain medicine. Now, like regular meds that should be plenty don't do anything for me. Sarah wasn't given any meds, so she just had to deal with her pain. I went home with my back just screaming and, and being in so much pain. They wouldn't do anything because I told them exactly what I needed and what you know, what was going to work and not work. And somehow that, you know, made me a drug seeker. So, yeah, I think that's a big thing, you know, that I feel angry about where like now, even though you're gone, like I can't get the medical care that I need when, you know, I need it because they just assume that I'm drug seeking. And as a result of Cruciani's terrible, negligent, and frankly criminal medical care, Sarah's daughter was born with neonatal abstinence syndrome. Sarah's daughter is six years old, and she still experiences negative issues as a result of Cruciani's medical care during Sarah's pregnancy. Sarah and her daughter's lives have been irreparably damaged by this evil fucking devil man. If you read up on NAS, neonatal abstinence syndrome, there's quite a bit about how it affects how they learn and retain and, you know, everything like that. So it's like because she learns differently, because, you know, her brain formed differently due to the meds and everything, and then I'm disabled and, you know, home due to mental health, it's not just what directly happens to each victim, but it's it's really uh, how it expands out. Many of Cruciani's patients traveled hundreds of miles to see this amazing pain management doctor. He was their beacon of hope, their last shot at helping them manage their horrible chronic pain that no other doctor could fix. And instead, 
Cruciana gave them a drug addiction, traumatized them, and as in Sarah's case, impacted the lives of their children. All doctors take the Hippocratic Oath, which explicitly states that they will do no harm. Cruciani did so much harm to so many women. The whole thing is so fucking tragic. And what we want to know is where the hell were Cruciani's colleagues during when all of this shit was going on? What had they known? What had they picked up on? And we ask this because the American Medical Association's Code of Ethics requires all licensed medical professionals and nurses to report unethical behavior. Did not one single person at Beth Israel or Capital Health Hospitals know that Cruciani was abusing his power as a prescribing doctor? Why did it take three medical facilities and 15 years to catch this predator? When Drexel University hired Cruciani in 2016, they reported that there were zero bad marks on Cruciani's background check, which is fucking crazy. I actually, it like makes me How? How? So this is absurd because Cruciani's patients had been speaking out against the sexual assault for years, for fucking years. So brace yourselves because you're going to get mad in a second. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. You ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or random phone number that keeps calling you, Truthfinder has you covered. You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. Truthfinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today. The New York Times reported that Cruciani was able to continue his predatory behavior for so long because numerous hospital administrators at Beth Israel and Capital Health ignored his misconduct, even when patients made reports against him. So instead of facing any consequences, Cruciani was quietly transferred from position to position and from state to state. And that's why he unexpectedly resigned from Beth Israel in 2013 and moved to Capital Health. And at both hospitals, there were many red flags that medical staff, they simply ignored them. Like how Cruciani was reluctant to have a nurse present in the room when he was with his female patients. And one patient reported that they begged the Beth Israel nurses to stay on multiple occasions, but the requests were refused by Cruciani and the nurses. And sometimes Cruciani locked the door to the examination room while meeting with these female patients. Other times, Cruciani would peek around the door when a nurse knocked, obscuring their view from the room so they couldn't see evidence of his sexual assault. And when Cruciani targeted the patient, he went out of his way to schedule them late in the day with fewer people in the office. This was like a premeditated, really like insidious sort of guy who's doing this shit. He was also known to meet patients alone in his private office. He also would bait and lure patients to a hotel 
or to his apartment. Oh God, it's Ugh. it's terrible. You fucking trust your doctor, man. Like, yeah. and he knows this. People trust their doctors and he took full fucking advantage. So his visits with patients were unnecessarily long and often would last over an hour. And if you go to a doctor, you know that doctor sees you for five fucking minutes. Yeah, they want to get the fuck out. Yep. And they were like bopping around between room examination rooms and like no hate. Like I don't, if a doctor is staying with me for like an hour, that's bad news. Like bop in and bop out. Yeah. But this guy, regardless of what the ailment was, would stay with people for over an hour. So the way this unfolded with these hospitals being advised to transfer problematic medical administrators as opposed to holding them responsible, there's obviously a reason they do this. And I think true crime consumers will know this if they've listened to things like Dr. Death, et cetera, right? They do this to avoid the liability, the responsibility, the financial compensation they'd have to dole out. They would rather pass it to another hospital and let them discover, quote unquote, on the record what they're doing and let them pay for it, right? So this is something that isn't super uncommon. We've heard the podcast about it. Yeah. I don't listen to medical podcasts because they scare the bejesus out of me because it's too real. Do you, Jack? I mean, I listened to Dr. Death. I did too, but I regret it and I won't listen anymore. <laughs> you too? I mean, kind of. I mean, it really is these people you're supposed to trust, like you're supposed to trust. And it really, situations like this make me lose all hope in humanity. Like I I try not to be a Debbie Downer, glass half full type of person when it comes to humans, but it's like you're, you're told to trust your doctor, like with your lives and with your ailments and your diseases. And it's just, it's the most disheartening fucked up thing. So this happens all the time. And it's the reason that Dr. Cruciani was able to get away with this for so long, despite the fact that multiple patients informed staff members at Beth Israel and Capital Health that Cruciani was sexually assaulting them. A few patients even wrote to the hospital administrators, sending them letters explaining their complaints. So one patient told the Beth Israel Hospital psychologist that Dr. Cruciani had forcibly kissed her, and she requested that this incident be reported, but it never was. Another patient's husband called the Capital Health and reported the sexual assault, but no action was taken. They're like, no, thank you. We're not listening to what you have We're to not, say. We don't care. We don't believe it. We don't care. This is going to be too much like baggage for us to have to deal with. So. Right. Later, Capital Health's press office denied that any staff was informed of the abuse, like likely fucking story. They said that they were shocked and saddened about these allegations. Okay. So even more shocking, according to the New York Times, this situation's not all that uncommon. So shady doctors don't get reported. And on rare occasion, they are caught. Everything is kept really hush-hush. And like Cruciani, bad doctors are just discreetly moved from one hospital or one practice to another. We saw this happen with Larry Nasser, who was the doctor for the U.S. women's gymnastics team. He assaulted at least 150 women over the course of two decades. And George Tyndall, who was the physician for the University of Southern California. For over 30 years, he assaulted more than 700 women. That's fucking astonishing and so disturbing. Then there's Robert Anderson, who gave numerous female patients unnecessary breast, pelvic, and rectal exams for almost 40 years while practicing at the University of Michigan. And Anderson's sexual abuse was discovered in May of 21 based on his own medical reports. But Anderson had already been dead for 13 years. Mm. God, I hate people. Lucky him. Right? And Robert Hayden, the doctor of Columbia University who pled guilty to sexually abusing 19 women but faced no prison time. Let's not forget about him. 
tight, cool, just out right. there living his life. Totally. And our listeners, our amazing listeners who do work in the medical fields, who we appreciate so much, I know they're probably not that surprised to hear this because there's bad apples in every fucking bunch. And the medical field is a particularly vulnerable field for people if you're fucking sociopathic, right? Like people just are trusting and willing to believe you. So those who exploit it, I mean, that's a whole fucking thing. And despite Cruciani's trail of sexual assault allegations, regardless of all of it, he was able to continue treating patients for 15 years. So this is a predator who's being, you know, enabled for year after year. Oh, yeah. And the only reason that he's still not hurting women to this day is that Drexel University finally took action. And honestly, they kind of they kind of had to. After only one year as the head of neurology at Drexel, Cruciani had been reported eight fucking times for inappropriate sexual behavior. And his firing in March of 2017 led to his arrest in September of 2017. And since Cruciani had committed crimes in Pennsylvania at Drexel University, New York at Beth Israel, and New Jersey at Capitol Health, he'd faced charges in all three states. So Pennsylvania was first. With all of the victims coming forward and the increasing media buzz about this case, everybody was certain that Cruciani would be locked in prison for the rest of his life for his crimes. But he wasn't. By the end of his Pennsylvania court proceedings in 2019, Cruciani only had pled guilty to seven minor misdemeanors for groping seven female patients. His punishment was to surrender his medical license, register as a low-level sex offender, and serve seven years of probation. Like, that was it for everything that this fucking predator has done. Insane. And as a part of her own six-year-long legal battle against Cruciani and the hospitals he worked at, our first-degree Sarah went to Cruciani's Pennsylvania court proceedings. So as a reminder, while he's facing his Pennsylvania charges first, this guy had perpetrated these types of crimes in every state in which he practiced. I wanted him to, to go to prison. He had the case in New York, he had the case in New Jersey, and he had the case in Pennsylvania. Even though he was in prison, having admitted to these things, like he admitted to what he did to me, New York allowed him release so that he could go to his daughter's wedding. So it was just like he just constantly was getting like free passes and, you know, just ways to make it easier or better on him and his family. So yeah, you heard that right. Cruciani was given several privileges after his Pennsylvania trial while awaiting his New York trial. And one of them was that officials allowed Cruciani to leave the country and travel to Argentina to attend his daughter's wedding. So needless to say, the public was outraged at such a light sentence for a serial rapist. People wanted to know why Pennsylvania only pursued seven charges when there were so many women coming forward against him. And according to Philadelphia law enforcement officials, many of the women's cases were not strong enough to formally charge Cruciani. But according to Cruciani's former patients, Philadelphia PD dropped the ball on Cruciani's case. One victim named Tanisha Johnson told the New York Times that she reached out to Philadelphia police to report Cruciani for sexually abusing her in Pennsylvania. They told her the case was dealt with since his plea deal had already gone through. And for the record, this is just not how the criminal justice system works at all. 
Since Cruciani sexually assaulted multiple people, each and every one of them had the right to bring a case against him themselves. Right. And there's no doubt that aspects of this case were mishandled. And this wasn't a one-off failure of the Philadelphia authorities because other women who had been sexually assaulted by Cruciani had the exact same experience when trying to report him after his plea deal. Philadelphia's response was so bad that some people wondered if their law enforcement officials were trying to cover up Cruciani's case, but not investigating their additional allegations. And according to the AP News, Philadelphia police have a long history of burying rape cases. That's no good. And the spokesman for the Philadelphia DA office said that Philadelphia authorities and prosecutors didn't have the quote-unquote tools to file charges for each of the female accusers. These cases are hard to convict and they're hard to prosecute, but try harder. This guy's obviously a serial abuser. Yeah, it's disgusting. Yeah. So Cruciani's case gained a huge amount of press after his Pennsylvania trial. And now that the entire East Coast was watching everything unfold, New York was ready to drop the hammer on this quote unquote doctor. However, due to COVID, his New York trial was postponed, but it finally took place in June of 2022, three years after his Pennsylvania trial. And while there were tons of victims with first-person stories, the prosecution focused only on the stories of six female patients, obviously a fraction of his true victims, that he assaulted at the hospital at Beth Israel, which is where this dude worked around 2012. So some of the patients chose to remain anonymous, but Tanisha Johnson, Hillary Tullins, and Nella Vince have chosen to be named as survivors of Cruciani's assault. And during the trial, the prosecution explained how Cruciani groomed his patients with addictive painkillers. And Cruciani's defense team's only argument was that the female victims, they were liars. That's all. That's what they did. That that was their whole defense. Mm, Nice. So on Friday, July 22nd of 2022, this was not that long ago. After deliberating for about three days, the jury found the now 68-year-old Ricardo Cruciani guilty on 12 counts of predatory sexual assault, sexual abuse, rape, and other crimes. So finally, justice was served. Victims reported that they were relieved to know that Cruciani would now be punished. Hillary Tolins cried upon hearing the news and said that she was beyond happy. She told the New York Times that she could finally start healing from everything that she had experienced. After the conviction, Cruciani was sent to Rikers Island jail complex to await his sentencing. And immediately, Cruciani's lawyer asked for his client to be put on suicide watch, which meant that Cruciani would be supervised 24-7, even in the bathroom. Right. But due to staffing constraints at Rikers, Cruciani wasn't put on suicide watch. And I know, everyone, it's weird that this happens. It's weird, but it does happen. So brace yourselves for the frustration that Jack and I felt on the heels of Epstein, right? (laughs) So around 4 a.m. on Monday, August 15th of 2022, just a few mere months ago, after less than a month in prison, Cruciani entered the shower, wrapped a sheet around his neck. No one was around despite being in a very populous jail. And um, he attempted to hang himself. He was discovered at 5.35 a.m., an hour and a half plus five minutes later, and he died within the hour. So one month later, you know, he would have been sentenced and would have faced 25 years to life in prison just for his New York crimes alone. That's not including his pending New Jersey or his federal charges. So listen, I know all of us, when we hear like a bad guy kills themselves or takes their own life, like we're like, great, he's gone. But like, 
that doesn't necessarily make to make his victims feel better. Like Sarah was no. very much, Sarah was very much looking forward to some vindication about invalidation of what this man did. Yeah. Um, and he took all of that away from all of his victims. Right. So there's no surprise. Um, some of the survivors who encounter this guy feel cheated out of the justice that they rightfully deserve. Rikers is known to have many suicides because I guess there's just not enough people to oversee these prisoners or not enough. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but basically everyone knew it was going to happen, although I was still shocked. So I get a call at like nine or 10 in the morning from my attorney. And he's like, I just wanted to let you know that, you know, at some point he was alone and he went into the showers and he was found very early that morning, deceased in the bathroom in the shower area. At first I was really just, it was just, it was shock. I, I, I don't know why that, that didn't occur to me that that was something that could happen. Like I felt, you know, when he got convicted, it was like, finally, finally, someone is going to have to pay for, you know, these decisions that they made that affected, so you know, other people and things like that. Like I'm thinking about the kid who assaulted me in high school and then threatened to kill me. So I'm just, you know, so used to it always being an excuse. Nobody ever getting actually punished or or whatever you want to call it for decisions that were made that caused harm on other people. So I was like, okay, you know, at least the New York women got it and, you know, that's great. And then, you know, we'll see what happens in New Jersey and, you know, all that other stuff. And he was there for like a week or two. And at first I was just, just completely in shock. And then I really like emotionally had a really hard time with that because it was just like, again, again, someone is able to, you know, get out from something they did that caused so much harm to so many people. So did Cruciani escape punishment for what he did to Sarah, Sarah's daughter, and many of his other victims? It's hard to know. One victim told the New York Times, I take comfort knowing that Cruciani faces another judge. But a different victim said, I thought this was finally over. He took his own life and with this one selfish act, he robbed his victims of justice and closure. Despite his death, he still lives on in my nightmare. Even from the grave, Mr. Cruciani seeks to disrupt my life. And the only thing left for us is to try to prevent future Dr. Crucianis from harming others. And Sarah explains how important it is for victims of sexual abuse to report because they are not alone. It's not just them. It feels like you shouldn't say anything and you can't say anything and you don't want to, you know, ruin this person's life or whatever. But in all likelihood, it's not just you. There are other people that this is happening to or has happened to who also didn't say anything and who also felt that they were alone. You know, it's just, it needs to get out there. People, people need to realize that it's likely that it's happened to someone else. And even if you're the first person, stop it before it becomes a 30 to 40 long list of people that this professional has hurt. People really have to realize that the likelihood is they're not the only one and that them telling could mean a world of difference to someone else. 
who then doesn't have to go through it. When bad things happen to us, it's so much easier to just keep our mouth shut. Just bury it. Let's not make it more of a thing, right? It's exhausting to relive the traumas of our experiences, and standing up for yourself is really exhausting and emotionally laborious. And it's even more exhausting to argue with people who don't believe you, right? Like, who would sign up for this shit? It makes you want to not stand up for what's right and not tell the truth, but we can't do that. We can't just let predators go unpunished because that's what predators want us to do so they can continue hurting people without any repercussions. And they won't stop until their victims stand up for themselves. And it sucks that predators will continue harming others until they're forced to stop. It shouldn't be a victim's responsibility to police their own abuser. But if this predator is willing to hurt one person, they're willing and ready to do it to others. And like Sarah said, you never know who else is suffering at the hands of a predator. So as much as you can, whenever you can, whenever you're safe to do so, just say something. Report them to HR. Call the relevant authorities. The victims of Cruciani were courageous enough to make him pay for his crimes. We all need to take a page out of their books as long as we're safe to do so. Because you never know who you'll save. But that being said, I know anyone who's suffering any immense pain is doing their best to get out of it. And um, take the window when you can. I know not every moment is the right moment, but take it when you can. Well, huge thank you to Sarah for being our first degree guest for this episode. If you're listening out there and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram. Join our Facebook page. We're talking true crime all the time. Join our Patreon. We have so much fun bonus content for you over there. And tomorrow we'll have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed. A new year's episode. It's going to be fun. It's going to be delightful. And Sarah, you're amazing. Thank you so much for your courage and sharing all of this, like Jack said. But for now, and remember, only you can prevent serial killers. <laughs> we really, it's like you go off script and then you don't know what you're going to say. And That's keep right. your friends close. But not that close. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by... Andrea Marshbank, we love you. Sources for this episode are court documents, New York Times, New York Division of Criminal Justice, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, U.S. Department of Justice, AP News, People, New York Post, USA Today, U.S. News, Ancestry, The Journal News, Daily News, ABC News, CBS News, and The March of Dimes. And as always, our first degree guest is always our largest source. You ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or random phone number that keeps calling you, Truthfinder has you covered. You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. Truthfinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today.